Friday, February 17th, 2012. Thank you for listening tonight, and, and praise Yahweh. Tonight I'm going to discuss Hosea chapters 10 and 11. I, I really thought last week, I foolishly thought I'd, I'd finish Hosea today, and I got to writing these notes, and there's no way I'm going to finish Hosea today, right? First, I'm going to repeat an important concept which I discussed last week. Here is, what is his, here is what is written in the law. You know, somebody's universalist Christian identity, or, 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 or these clowns that claim to be Christian identity pastors, but are really closet universalists, I should say, that they claim that Yahweh always upholds his law, and then on the other hand, they turn around and, and they try to um, save room in the kingdom of heaven for the beasts of the field. And, and for the non-white races and, and everybody else in, a, well, in the cesspool, right? Here's what is written in the law at Leviticus 20, verse 10, concerning adultery. And the man that commits adultery with another man's wife, even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Israel as a nation, being the wife of Yahweh, has, according to the scripture, committed fornication with every other nation and race upon the face of the earth. There are many in Christian identity today who want to extend the mercy of God to the lovers of the whore, the other races which our Israel nations consort with unto this day. That is universalism. That is not the scripture, where it tells us that the mercy of God is extended to Israel alone. The day shall come when we see the words of Jeremiah fulfilled, go up to Lebanon and cry and lift up thy voice in Bashan and cry from the passages for all thy lovers are destroyed. Jeremiah 22.20. The children of Israel shall indeed be spared as Yahweh has promised. But all those consorting with her, all of her lovers, shall be destroyed by God according to his law. Thus Yahweh warns us in Isaiah chapter 52, and Paul repeats it in 2 Corinthians, to come out from among them and touch not the unclean so that he would receive us and be our God and we could be his people if indeed we are of the children of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, meaning Israel, though I make a full end of all the nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and leave thee not altogether unpunished. Jeremiah 46:28. In case you didn't get it the first time. Fear thou not, O Jacob, my servant, saith Yahweh, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven thee. Show me one nation on this planet without an Israelite. But I will not make a full end of thee, 
but correct thee in measure, yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. Attempting to extend the promises of Yahweh for preservation to anyone but the children of Israel is universalism. It is also an accusation against God that he will break his own laws concerning adultery. Because Israel has indeed committed adultery with every nation and race on the face of the earth. Zephaniah 3.8 Therefore, wait you upon me, saith Yahweh. That's our command now. Until the day that I rise up to the prey, for my determination is to gather the nations. Matthew 25, that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them my indignation, even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Again, Isaiah 29, verses 1 to 8. Woe to Ariel, Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp against thee round about, and will lay siege against thee with a mound. And I will raise forts against thee, and thou shalt be brought down, and shalt speak out of the ground. And thy speech shall be low out of the dust. And thy voice shall be as of one that has a familiar spirit out of the ground. And thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust. And the multitude of the terrible ones shall be as chaff that passes away. Yeah, it shall be at an instant, suddenly, if you could send the dust back to Mexico, then you could send the Mexicans back to Mexico. As dust. Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust. And the multitude of the terrible ones shall be as chaff that passes away. Yeah, it shall be an instant, suddenly, Thou shalt be visited by Yahweh of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and flame of the, the flame of devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her and her munition and that distress her, shall be as a dream of a night vision. When you wake up, they're gone. It shall even be as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he eats, but he awakes, and his soul is empty. Or when as a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he drinks, but he awakes, and behold, he is faint, and his soul has appetite. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fights against Mount Zion, that fights against the white race today. I wouldn't want to be caught trying to squeeze any of them into the kingdom of heaven. Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. 
Israel is an empty vine. He brings forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. Idolatry. Israel is an empty vine. This allegory is much like the one we see concerning Israel in Isaiah chapter 56, which uses the allegory of a dry tree, a tree without fruit, a vine, an empty vine. There are a lot of sick individuals, some of them even, even posing as identity pastors, and I'm talking about clowns like Brueggemann and Wieland, who would try to abuse Isaiah chapter 56 in order to bring universalism into the gospel message. So here, since it fits so well with the general theme of Hosea, we shall discuss Isaiah 56. The universalists are indeed, as we shall see, the greedy dogs which can never have enough, and the shepherds that cannot understand. Isaiah 56, chapter 11. The first 40 chapters of Isaiah are mostly prophecies to Israel before the final end of the kingdom. The last 26 chapters of Isaiah are written to the children of Israel as if they were all already in dispersion. And indeed, Isaiah was writing those chapters as the children of Israel had gone off into Assyrian captivity, and many of the children of Israel had left to inhabit the coastlands of the West even before that. The context is clear throughout these chapters that they apply only to the dispersed children of Israel. Here I will read Isaiah 54, verses 4 through 8, which helps us to set the context for Isaiah chapter 56. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. In other words, the children of Israel sinned in their national youth, and therefore Yahweh their husband put them out, making them as if they were widows. For thy maker is thine husband, Yahweh of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. For Yahweh has called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth when thou wast refused. Sayeth thy God. This, of course, describes Israel having been put away, yet looks forward to a reconciliation. Verse 7. For a small moment I have forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee meaning Israel, and nobody else. In a little wrath, I have hid my face for, from thee for a moment, a 750-year moment from the time of the deportations of the Israelites to the time of Christ. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith Yahweh thy Redeemer. The universalists love to twist the verses of Isaiah out of context. But this is the context that they can only apply to the very same children of Israel who were cast off from the polity of the ancient kingdom of God. Today we will see that. Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 and 2. 
Thus saith Yahweh, keep ye judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that does this, and the son of man that lays hold on it, that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. This does not admit outsiders. Rather, those outcasts of Israel who sought to continue in the commandments would be blessed, which is the natural result of keeping his commandments, the laws of obedience and disobedience, the blessings and curses. This can only include Israel because nobody but the children of Israel were even cognizant of the laws and the Sabbaths which were required by God only of the children of Israel. Psalm 78, 5. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. Psalm 105, verses 6 through 10. O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen, he is Yahweh our God, his judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac, and he confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant. Finally, Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any other nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise Yahweh. Nobody else but the ancient nation of Israel, as the references in the Psalms just quoted fully demonstrate, could have sought to keep the Sabbaths and the laws of God. For that reason alone, references to those keeping those things in Isaiah chapter 56 must be references to estranged Israelites, which is the context of Isaiah. The nation is put away for iniquity. Yet here in Isaiah chapter 56, we see a promise that Yahweh would provide for the individuals of that nation who did not practice that iniquity and rather sought his justice. Isaiah 56.3 Neither let the son of the stranger that has joined himself to Yahweh speak, saying, Yahweh has utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. the empty vine of Hosea 10.1. The son of the stranger here represents the descendants of those same outcasts of Israel who were estranged by Yahweh and therefore were as good as strangers to Yahweh. While the nation was outcast, the individuals who kept his ways during that estrangement were here being promised an ultimate reward. None of this can include non-Israelite peoples because Yahweh already 
separated non-Israelite peoples a thousand years before this time at Mount Sinai. Okay, maybe 800 years. Here those cast-off Israelites who choose to keep his ways are reassured that they will not be separated from being counted among his people, even though their nation was destroyed and they were driven out of it. The only way they could say that Yahweh has utterly separated me from his people is if they were his people in the first place. And therefore, the allegorical eunuchs who may have said this could only have been of the children of Israel. They were estranged, therefore, they were figurative strangers, and they were figurative eunuchs. That estrangement ended with the reconciliation of the cross of Christ. Among other places in the New Testament, this is evident in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. The Ephesians were descendants of the ancient Israelites, not those of the Assyrian deportations, but of the even earlier colonizations of the Israelites of the Exodus and the Judges periods, during which time many of the people, later known some as Greeks and some as Phoenicians and some as Trojans, who later became the Rogians, the, the Romans, had made settlements throughout the Mediterranean. Paul tells the Ephesians, and I quote, on which account? You must remember that at one time you, the nations in the flesh, Paul is telling these Ephesians that they are the nations of the promise to Abraham in the flesh. That's what that line means. He's not calling them Gentiles in the flesh. That's an absolutely ridiculous and ahistorical statement. You, the nations in the flesh, who are the so-called uncircumcised, by the so-called circumcised made by hand in the flesh, meaning that the uncircumcised really aren't non-Israelites, and the circumcised in Judea, they're really not Israelites. Because you had at one time been apart from Christ, having been alienated from the civic life of Israel. I know your King James says, having been strangers there. But the word is a verb. And it's a past tense verb, and it means alienated. It means to be estranged. They had to be Israelites in the first place. Having been alienated from the civic life of Israel and strangers of the covenants of the promise, they hadn't, they'd lost their connection to the covenants of the promise. Not having hope in the society without Yahweh, but now you among the number of Christ, who at one time being far away have become near by the blood of Christ. Paul is speaking of the very reconciliation. That's the word he uses. Of the descendants of the ancient Israelites to God through Christ, as the scripture promised. The New Testament proves the contextual and historical interpretation of the Old Testament at every turn. And it is the only valid interpretation. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 4. 
verses 4 through 7. For thus saith Yahweh unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that they shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger, the sons of those who are estranged, the sons of the estranged ones that join themselves to Yahweh to serve him and to love the name of Yahweh to be his servants. Everyone that keeps the Sabbaths, which only Israel received, according to the Psalms, in diverse places. Everyone that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it and takes hold of my covenant, which was only with the children of Israel. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. A stranger here is one who has been alienated from God, since the context can only include the children of Israel. A eunuch cannot have children. Yahweh forsaking the children of Israel, to him they became as if they were eunuchs. And we will see that in Hosea. All of the Israelites of the captivity were sons and daughters of God. Yahweh said of Israel in Deuteronomy 14.1, that ye are the children of Yahweh your God. Here we see that if, in the captivity, any one of them remained in the covenant agreement with him to keep the laws and the Sabbaths, that they, being sons and daughters, would be given a reward greater than sons and daughters. These are four passages from here in Hosea which illustrate that Israel became as a eunuch to Yahweh when the nation was cast off, and therefore individual, individual Israelites are allegorically the eunuchs of Isaiah 56 and the strangers of Isaiah 56. And each of these verses promises a reconciliation between Yahweh and those very same children of Israel as does Isaiah 56. Hosea 1.10 Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass that in a place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, <clears throat> you are the sons of the living God. During the period of alienation from Yahweh, the children of Israel were not recognized as children to him. You are not my people. This is an allegory, and it is also promised that nevertheless, one day it would be explained to those very same people, and to nobody else, that they are indeed his children. Hosea 2, 4-7 And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms, again speaking to those same children of Israel. For their mother has played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, 
I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. In other words, the captivity of Israel will not return to Palestine and find those ancient ways. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. Where she's going, she wouldn't find them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, that is Christ. For then it was better with me than now. Here again we see a prophesied estrangement and then a reconciliation. The prophecy of Daniel concerning Christ in Daniel 9, verse 24, says this, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, in other words, to finally end the ancient nation and fulfill all of its sin, which was race mixing, which is how the crucifixion came about because the Edomites had taken the kingdom over. And to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. The Apostle John spoke of that anointing of the most holy where he said it, 1 John 2.27, And the anointing which you have received from him, it abides in you, and you have no need that one should teach you, but as his anointing teaches us concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie, then just as he has taught you, you abide in him. The purpose of Christ is to offer reconciliation and to offer his anointing to those of his people who choose to follow him as defined in Daniel 9.24. Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim, all the symbols of their national heritage. Afterward shall the children of Israel Return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king, and shall fear Yahweh in his goodness in the later days. Again, we see the promise of the reconciliation of Israel to God after they lost all of the symbols of their nationhood and their kingdom. And Paul explains that very thing to be his ministry where he says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19, but all things from Yahweh, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. Paul tells the Corinthians, and they were indeed descendants of the ancient Israelites, the Corinthians being Dorian Greeks. He tells them that they're being reconciled to God and is giving the service of reconciliation to us. There Paul defines his ministry as the service of reconciliation, going to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and reconciling them to God in Christ, just as Daniel 9.24 defined the purpose of Christ. There is no other purpose. 
There are additional purposes for these people, but it can't be taken outside of the scope of that reconciliation. How that Yahweh was within Christ reconciling the society, meaning the Adamic society, which had been virtually possessed by the children of Israel at this time, and that is historical. The Parthians, the Dorian Greeks, the Romans, the Celts, the Phoenician settlers in the West. They were all Israelites. They were the society of the time of Christ. There were some Japhethite nations who were playing, at this time, secondary roles. The Athenians, the Ionian Greeks, the Persians, the Elamites of the ancient of the ancient Adamic world, their roles were secondary. The Hamitic Egyptians, the white Egyptians, their roles were secondary. The Macedonians and the Romans and the Parthians and the Scythians, the Germanic tribes of the north, they controlled the world at this time. That's the society Christ is reconciling to himself. The seed of Abraham did inherit the world by the time of Christ. And most of the old Genesis 10 nations were long fallen into decay. Persia and Assyria, Egypt, Media. How the Yahweh was within Christ, reconciling the society to himself, not accounting their offenses to them, and placing us in the word of that reconciliation. Paul here defines his ministry as a reconciliation between lost Israel and God. Paul knew the nations he went to. He knew that they were the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He explained that in Romans chapter 4. He explained that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He explains it here in the epistle to the Colossians. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He knew that his message was one of reconciliation between Israel and God. As promised in the prophets and as he explains throughout his epistles. Hosea 9.12 Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them that there shall not be a man left. Yea, woe also unto them when I depart from them. Speaking allegorically, the children of Israel were as eunuchs to God until the promised reconciliation in Christ. They will be left bereft. Which Daniel 9.24 says is to make reconciliation for iniquity. The Bible is a consistent book with a consistent message from cover to cover. Now, before proceeding with Hosea, it may be fitting to read the rest of Isaiah chapter 56 from verse 8. Yahweh God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, has said, Yet will I gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him. So we see that in Christ... God intends to gather nobody but the lost sheep, the outcasts of Israel. This alone should prove the assertions given here in the interpretations of Isaiah 56. Nobody else has ever promised this gathering to God 
except the outcasts of Israel. The gathering of others to him besides those which are gathered is still inclusive only of Israelites because Yahweh, as he says here, gathers the outcasts of Israel. He doesn't gather the outcasts of Israel and the Negroes or the outcasts of Israel and the Mexicans. He only gathers the outcasts of Israel. The children of Israel, even before the Assyrian deportations, had already come to colonize much of Europe by sea, all the way to the British Isles and the Scandinavian coasts. So Yahweh will gather others to him, those who were already dispersed, besides those which are gathered, who became the Germanic peoples and filled the interior of Europe. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. And it shall come to pass in that day that Yahweh shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. Of course, these are all allegorical, these being the, the faraway places that Isaiah was familiar with and he could write about. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, nobody else, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth, period, Israel, Judah. Again, the focus is on the gathering of the dispersed of Israel, and that's it. Now at the end of Isaiah chapter 56, we shall see a prophecy concerning universalism, which is being fulfilled throughout the white Christian nations this very day. From Isaiah 56, 9, All ye beasts of the field come to devour. Yeah, all ye beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Even like certain so-called Christian identity pastors, they want to save the beasts. They want us to bring in the beasts and make, us, make them like us. Why? Isaiah tells us why in 56.11. Yeah, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough. They are shepherds that they cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his gain from his quarter. Come, ye say, I will fetch wine and we will fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow shall be as this day and more abundant. They think there is profit in universalism and there is only destruction. And that's what's going on right now. I would have no part in it. I have no gospel for the beasts. With that, we'll continue with Hosea chapter 10, verse 2. Their heart is divided. Now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. For now they shall say, We have no king, because we feared not Yahweh. What then should a king do to us? They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. 
Thus, judgment springs up as a hemlock in the furrows of the field. At Hosea chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, the Septuagint renders the rhetorical question concerning kings a little clearer, and I will repeat that. They have divided their hearts. Now shall they be utterly destroyed. He shall dig down their altars, their pillars shall mourn. Because now they shall say, we have no king, because we feared not Yahweh. And what should a king do for us? Speaking false professions as his words. He will make a covenant, and judgment shall spring up as a weed on the soil of the field. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, it described how the children of Israel, who had God for their king, wanted earthly kings like the surrounding nations had. Yahweh warned them of much of the treachery that the earthly kings would do to them, and they did not heed his warning, persisting in their own devices. Here in Hosea we see that earthly kings would make false oaths. They would make treacherous covenants, and judgment would come upon the people because of those things. Think today about the international agreements which our modern kings have made with all the world's heathen nations. And this prophecy rings absolutely true for us today, just as it was then. Even in the days of Solomon, we see that the kings had merchants engaging in international trade. This can be seen in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn, the king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price, and they fetched up and brought forth out of Egypt a chariot for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so brought they out horses for all the kings of the Hittites and for the kings of Syria by their means. It was the earthly kings who had caused the children of Israel to engage in idolatry as is witnessed also in the days of in the story of Jeroboam who changed the religion of the nation for reason of his own perceived political expediency so that he could maintain power we have seen these things repeat themselves throughout history today so-called christian churches teach politically expedient lies and the people that attend them are worshiping the Jews and not the Christ. For the sake of maintaining those in power, and for the sake of not excluding anyone from their commerce, as we saw the sin, the first sins that Hosea discussed of the children of Israel back in chapters 1 and 2, they had discourse with all these other nations because they liked raisin cakes. They liked their food. They sought their trade in commerce so they could share in their goods, even though the children of Israel were told not to do that. They were told not to engage with those other heathen nations. They liked raisin cakes. Today, we like trinkets made in China. There's nothing new under the sun. Therefore, their hearts are divided, as Hosea exclaims of ancient Israel here for these very reasons. No man can serve two masters, God and mammon. So it was then, and we have the same situation throughout all Christian nations today. 
We see the people explain, we had no king because we feared not Yahweh. For their sin, Yahweh forsook them, and when their earthly kingdom was destroyed, they were left destitute of any reprieve before God. Hosea 10.5 The inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the calves of Beth Haven. For the people thereof shall mourn over it, and the priests thereof that rejoiced on it, for the glory thereof, because it is departed from it. In other words, for these reasons, the priests shall also mourn for the loss of their pagan idols. It shall be also carried unto Assyria for a present to King Jareb. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. As for Samaria, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. The high places also of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall come up upon their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. The golden calf, idols of Beth Haven, a name which means house of vanity, were to be carried off as booty to Assyria. This is the second time in Hosea that we have seen the king of Assyria called after the word or the name Jareb, the other time being in the Hosea 5.13. The word in Hebrew means contender, and it doesn't need to be a personal name. It's not recorded in history, right? But seems to merely describe the role for which Assyria was elevated to by Yahweh and chosen to play in history at this time. They contended with the children of Israel. They contended with Yahweh because he wanted the children of Israel to be punished. He raises up those who would punish us. The high places also of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Avon here is a play on words in contrast to Beth Haven, and the word means vanity. And it refers to the vanity of the places of idol worship. The people, wishing that the mountains could bury them, would rather die than go into captivity. Hosea 10.9 O Israel, thou hast sinned for the days of Gibeah. There they stood, the battle in Gibeah against the children of, against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. Once again, Gibeah is used in this, as an example of the sin of Israel. This is the last mention of Gibeah in Scripture. At Hosea 9.9, Yahweh said, They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. Therefore, he will remember their iniquity. He will visit their sins. The mention of the days of Gibeah is a reference to the civil war, which was caused when a woman a concubine of a Levite traveler, was raped and murdered by men of Belial in Gibeah, a city in the land of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin defended these men of Belial against those Israelites, the rest of the tribes who came to avenge the woman after the Levite had sent out a report of what happened. The result was that at first the other tribes of Israel took heavy losses. But ultimately, most of Benjamin was destroyed because they were defending these men of Belial. 
Examining Hosea chapter 9, it is fully evident that with the reference to the iniquity of Gibeah, we see a strong connection is being made between the sin of the men of Belial, the people in Benjamin who defended that sin, the strangers in Ephraim, and the sin of Israel in Hosea's time for which the kingdom is being judged by God. Race mixing is indeed the worst of all sins. And allowing those people of mixed race to inhabit our towns and villages and live among us is inviting their perversion. And we have seen that without all doubt when the Jews immigrated to America. We have all experienced firsthand all of the sin and perversion they have brought and permeated throughout our society. At Gibeah, the perverted crimes of such men were then defended by the people. A horrible situation indeed. It is also a situation that we have once again today, where people are often found actually defending some pervert so-called right to be a sexual deviant, a race mixer, or to engage in other forms of sexual promiscuity. Often this immorality is even disguised in noble-sounding terms, such as libertarianism. It sounds wonderful and freedom-loving, but it is really the perfect ideology for the Antichrist Jew, and it eventually leads to tyranny. In defending everybody's right to be anything and anyone and do everything they want, we have gone from a freedom-loving nation and we've descended into a tyranny. We see that today. Again, we shall be judged accordingly. And one more lesson. In the story of Gibeah, is that the wrongdoers prevailed. The Benjaminites prevailed in two major victories before they were ultimately defeated. And that also, if you go back to the book of Judges and read the account, was the will of God. Hosea 10.10. It is in my desire that I should chastise them, and the people shall be gathered against them, when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows. If the appropriate reading is two furrows, then the reference is to the Assyrian and the coming Babylonian captivities. But the NAS has this clause, this last clause from a marginal reading, when they are bound for their double guilt. That reading agrees with the Septuagint, which of course is long before the marginal notes, right? The Septuagint has, when they are chastened for their two sins, and that's how Brenton translated a word which actually means injustices in the Greek. What the two injustices may be is arguable. In context, in the first verse of, chap- of the chapter, Israel is criticized for two things, where it says of Israel that according to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. The primary injustice with which leads to all other sin is the acceptance of the false gods of the other nations because that leads to race mixing with the other nations.
there's an important concept there to understand and, and, and which is totally applicable today, but it's not applicable in ancient Israel. Today, these Mexicans might say, oh, I believe in Jesus or I believe in God. Well, their entire idea of Jesus or God is not the biblically Christian idea. It may seem when we use words like God and Lord, it may seem like they're agreeing with us, but their concepts of God are totally different than ours. While they may use those same obscure titles, they sure as hell don't mean the same thing by them when they use them. And when we accept them, those people, we every, mu- every bit as much as these ancient ancestors, we accept their idolatry. Because their God is not our God and never will be. Yahweh is the God of Israel. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is our God. And he can't be the God of the other races. And even though the other races use that word God, they don't mean the God that we know. They don't have our morals. They don't have our spirits. And they can't worship our God ever. I don't care what name they use. Their idea of that name is totally different. So it boils down to the fact that it is still idolatry, just like it was in ancient times. When the aliens didn't, when they had their own names for their own gods. We basically only forced the aliens to call their gods by our names. That's all that converting them to Christianity did. They call their same gods by our names, and their morals and their standards have not changed. They still think it righteous to perform all sorts of evil and wicked and perverted deeds that we reject as a people. Hosea 10.10. I'm sorry, I read that. Hosea 10.11. Ephraim. And Ephraim is as a heifer, a heifer that is taught, I'm sorry, a heifer that is taught and loves to tread out the corn. But I passed over upon her fair neck, and I will make Ephraim to ride, and Judah shall plow, and Jacob shall break his clods. And if that verse doesn't make any sense to you, don't feel guilty about it. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. Break, your, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek Yahweh till he comes and rains righteousness upon you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you did trust in thy way, in your way, in the multitude of your mighty men. They trusted in, them, in themselves, and they did not trust in God. They created their own moral climate, rather than live by the word of their God. The Septuagint has verse 11, which is a difficult verse. Ephraim is a heifer taught to love victory, but I will come upon the fairest part of her neck. In other words, Ephraim will be defeated. I will mount Ephraim. 
I will pass over Judah in silence. Jacob shall prevail against him. This repeats the already promised continuance of the kingdom of Judah, while Ephraim, representing the rest of Israel, shall ride into captivity. However, where the Septuagint has in verse 11 the phrase, Jacob shall prevail against him, meaning against Ephraim, the King James has, Jacob shall break his clods. The literal translation is practically nonsense. Ephraim has a multitude of sins. Ephraim is deserving of death. Ephraim loves his sin, where the allegory is that Ephraim is as a heifer, a heifer that is taught and loves to tread out the corn. Ephraim loves his sin. Yet, although Ephraim deserves death for his sin, Jacob shall prevail against him. Now here Ephraim is, of course, being used as a name describing the ten northern tribes, right? All of Israel except for the remnant of Judah that stays behind. Ephraim is here an allegory for Israel. Jacob shall prevail against him, and that means that the promises which Yahweh made to Jacob shall prevail over anything which Ephraim does. The seed of Israel is preserved, not for themselves, but for God, on account of his promises to the fathers. In verses 12 and 13, Ephraim is once again encouraged to seek Yahweh God, and if indeed he does, he shall yet be rewarded in spite of the sins that had been committed. Paul said this at Romans chapter 15, verse 8. Now I say that Yahshua Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Likewise, Luke recorded the words of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, concerning the purpose of Christ, where he says, Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he has visited and brought about redemption for his people and has raised the horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from old, preservation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to bring about mercy with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, which is given to us being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies to serve him in piety and in righteousness before him for all of our days. On account of the promises Yahweh made to our most ancient ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, we cannot lose our redemption even if we so desired. Jacob, the promises made to Jacob, shall prevail over the sins of Ephraim. Hosea 10.14 Therefore shall a tumult arise among thy people, and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled. As Shalman spoiled Bethar Bel in the day of battle, 
The mother was dashed in pieces upon her children, the mother figuratively being the kingdom. Verse 15, So shall Bethel do unto you because of your great wickedness. In the morning shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off. Another difficult verse in this, in the King James Version. Shalman seems to be short for the Assyrian king, Shalmaneser, who is described as having invaded Israel and having taken away many captives in 2 Kings chapters 17 and 18. This name for him only appears here. It was Shalmaneser who took Samaria circa 722 B.C., Samaria must have been a powerful city, because 2 Kings, chapter 18, describes the siege of Samaria, undertaken by the Assyrians, as having lasted for three years. It's a long time. The last king of Israel was Hosea, and that siege lasted from his sixth year to his ninth years. According to the Assyrian records, over 27,000 inhabitants from Samaria alone were taken captive to Assyria. Biblical records show that many more were taken from other parts of Israel in addition to the 27,000. And we have neither the complete Israelite nor the complete Assyrian records of these events. Beth Arbel means house of God's ambush. Many commentators assume it to be a place, but it cannot be identified, and it is not necessarily a place. It may only indicate that the Assyrian conquest of Israel was indeed the will of God. Verse 15 seems to be an error in the King James Version. Bethel is in Israel, and it was in Ephraim, and will not be doing anything to Israel. The NAS has it, the North American Standard Version has it, thus it will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. A little different, the verb being transitive and intransitive instead of transitive. At the dawn, at dawn the king of Israel will be completely cut off. The Septuagint has Hosea 10:15. Thus will I do to you, O house of Israel, Bethel isn't even mentioned, because of the unrighteousness of your sins. Either of those readings, either the one in the NAS or the one in the Septuagint, better fits the context and the history of the chapter than the way the King James Version has it. That's why it's important that we have and, and study every version of Scripture we could get our hands on, because they all contain the mistakes of man. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. The Apostle Matthew imagined these words of the prophets to refer to Christ. And that is the only interpretation that most mainstream commentators even recognize as being valid today. Matthew 2.15, in reference to Joseph, Mary, and the Christ child, says that they were, says of the time that they were in Egypt, and I quote, until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by, of Yahweh, by the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I have called my son. 
But here in Hosea, it is evident that the words clearly and primarily refer to the nation of Israel. Figuratively, as a nation, Israel is often depicted as the bride of Yahweh, and that is true. But here, figuratively, Israel, the nation, is depicted as the son of Yahweh, which is also true of the children of Israel, both collectively and as individuals. We, having descended from Adam, the son of Yahweh, and Yahweh recognizing us as his children. Paul explains in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 to 18, For surely not that of angels has he taken upon himself, referring to Christ, but he has taken upon himself of the offspring of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, from which he was obliged in all respects to become like the brethren, that he would be a compassionate and faithful high priest of the things pertaining to Yahweh to make a propitiation for the failures of the people. In what he himself has suffered being tested, he is able to help those being tested. Matthew's pointing to Hosea 11.1 in reference to Christ is a token of this same thing, that Yahshua was indeed the Christ, who both symbolically and literally taking upon himself the flesh of the Adamic Israelite man suffered that same experience as his Israelite people. In that manner alone could he fairly be their judge, having shown that he too suffered their experiences. His sojourn to Egypt and his coming out is a token of the certainty of this, and Matthew points out its fulfillment. The children of Israel summed up in their father Jacob, Yahweh says, out of Egypt I have called my son. That also refers to Christ, who also fulfilled that, so that he can show us that he was indeed no different than we are. Hosea 11.2 As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed unto Baalim, plural for Baal, and burned incense to graven images. There seems to be some pronoun confusion here. The Septuagint more clearly has it. As I called them, meaning Yahweh, so they departed from my presence. They sacrificed to Baalim and burned incense to graven images. No sooner coming out of Egypt than when the children of Israel encountered other peoples did they once again follow in the ways of those other peoples and departed from Yahweh their God for the enticements of Baal worship. This tendency to slip away so easily is immediately evident at Sinai and then on the plains of Moab, as it is described from Numbers chapter 25, where the chief enticement was sexual gratification. Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters, not the idols, with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people under the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat, and bowed down to their gods. The sex came first. 
And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. Hosea 11.3 I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arms, but they knew not that I healed them. I drew them with cords of a man with bands of love. And I was to them as they did take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. He fed them and took the bit from their mouths, right? The Septuagint has Hosea 11.3, Yet I bound the feet of Ephraim. I took him on my arm. But they knew not that I healed them. Even coming out of the captivity of Egypt and the wars and the conquests of Canaan, did the people not put things in their proper perspective and give appropriate honor to Yahweh their God for their success? They knew not that he healed them. When we succeed, when we do well, we should bear in mind that it is it is the will of our God. When we fail, we should bear in mind that we're being chastised. And we should turn and examine our behavior and wonder the cause of our failure. Because surely it is judgment for our own sin. Verse 5. He shall not return into the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to return. Having strayed from the God which they owed their very existence to, they refuse to return, meaning they refuse to repent of their wickedness. The Geneva Bible has here that he refused to convert. We saw earlier in Hosea the prophecy that Israel would return to Egypt at Hosea 8.13 and Hosea 9.3. At 8.13 it says explicitly that they shall return to Egypt. There is no discrepancy here. Rather, here in Hosea chapter 11, we see it reinforced that the proper interpretation of Egypt in chapters 8 and 9 is as a metaphor for captivity where it says in Egypt, of Egypt in Hosea 8.13 and Hosea 9.3 that Israel would return to Egypt, it means Israel would return to captivity. It uses Egypt as a metaphor for the captivity of Egypt, which the Israelites endured in ancient times. There is no return to the land of Egypt but rather there is a return to the state of captivity that was once suffered in Egypt. However, this time it would be at the hand of the Assyrians. And we see in history that that was fulfilled. Hosea was writing it as it was happening, or, or shortly before. Verse 6, And the sword shall abide on his cities, and shall consume his branches, and devour them because of their own counsels. When Hosea wrote these words, the people, being in fear of the Assyrian conquests, must have hated him. And my people are bent to backsliding from me, though they called them to the Most High, 
none at all would exalt him. Judgment is a result of sin. Sin inevitably leads to judgment. These are simple rules expressed all throughout the Bible and all throughout our history. Yet people still ignore the probabilities. It is not a mistake that our ancient ancestors chose the Greek, and our, I'm speaking about our ancient English-speaking ancestors, the medieval English-speaking peoples, chose the Greek word krisis, which means judgment to describe a calamity which to us is a crisis. That comes directly from the Greek word, which means judgment. Our ancestors, when they saw calamity and coined it a crisis, understood that it was the judgment of God that caused that calamity to come upon them for their wrongdoing. Otherwise, they wouldn't have used that word to make such a description. Hosea 11.8. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? My heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. These questions are all rhetorical. Three of them ask how Israel, well, well, I'm sorry, three of them ask how Israel could be destroyed. One of them seems to ask how Israel could possibly be saved. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? Yahweh can't give up Ephraim. He has those promises to the fathers. How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How the hell could he possibly save these people? (laughs) That they're beyond redemption, or at least from a man's perspective, they seem to be undeliverable. They seem to be unsavable. How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboam? These, Adma and Zeboam, were cities among the wicked Canaanite cities of the plain that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. Yahweh here with four rhetorical questions shows us that he's in a quagmire. He doesn't know how to destroy Israel, and he's asking how to save Israel. The quagmire is due to Yahweh's own honor, for he keeps both his laws and his promises. And, of course, he knows how he's going to save Israel. These questions are rhetorical. We, reading them, should dwell on and consider these things. Hosea 11.9 I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. In other words, Israel should be destroyed, but... He can't do that. He won't do it. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee, and I will not enter into the city. Yahweh being God, he shall find a way to preserve Ephraim in spite of Ephraim himself. This promise was later repeated, among other places, in relation to the New Covenant, In Jeremiah chapter 31, there, for instance, it says in verses 35 and 36, Thus saith Yahweh, which gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who divides the sea 
when the waves thereof roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. If there is a sun and a moon and stars, then the offspring of Israel are a nation. And of course, because this could never describe the Jews, right? We have always been a nation. The churches just don't know where to look. Hosea 11.10 They shall walk after Yahweh. He, meaning Yahweh, shall roar like like a lion when he shall roar, and the children shall tremble from the west when he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. Christendom is always often considered itself the west as opposed to the east. And this is but one more prophecy which shows where the dispersed people of Israel were expected to be. They shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt and as a dove out of the land of Assyria. And I will place them in their houses, saith Yahweh. The Septuagint reads verse 11. They shall be amazed and fly, words which are added to the text. They shall be amazed as a bird out of Egypt and as a dove out of the land of the Assyrians. And I will restore them to their houses, saith Yahweh. And these things they did do. The prophecy foreseeing not a return to Israel geographically, but a return to Israel being a separate people, a people separate from their captors, from the Assyrians. Although the Assyrians took them into captivity. These things were, of course, fulfilled in the Scythian migrations of the centuries which followed, which is also prophesied in Isaiah 66.19 and elsewhere. But Isaiah 66.19 explains where the children of Israel would go after their captivity. And all of those places listed are in the West, where Hosea indicates that they are expected to be found. Hosea 11.12 Ephraim compasses me about with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah yet rules with God and is faithful with the saints. We saw in the previous chapter of Hosea the reference to Shalmaneser and to events which occurred in the days of Hosea, the last king of Israel. During the same period, that meaning the captivity of Samaria, right? During the same period, Hezekiah is the ruling king in Judah. And we see in Hosea 1.1 that the time of Hosea's prophecy ends while Hezekiah is is king in Judah. This all puts this verse, verse 12, in historical perspective. Here we are told by the prophet that Judah during this period is faithful to Yahweh their God. And 2 Kings chapter 18 corroborates all of this for us. The Bible is a very complex collection of writings. However, 
once everything is lined up properly, we see that it is indeed a very true collection of writings. I'll read, Hosea, I'll read 2 Kings 18, 1-7. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. So Hezekiah was ruling when Samaria was destroyed, when Hosea was the king. That is when Shalmanesar was coming into Israel. Shalmanesar is the Assyrian king, as we have seen him named explicitly here, who took Samaria. Twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that, not the prophet Zechariah, who lived later. And he did that which was right in the sight of Yahweh, According to all that David his father did, he removed the high places and broke the images and cut down the groves and broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. They treated it as an idol. And he called it Nehushtan. He trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to, to Yahweh and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments, for which Yahweh commanded Moses. And Yahweh was with him, and he prospered, whithersoever he went forth, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria, and served him not. With Hezekiah's ruling the, king of, the kingdom of Judah at this very time, and ruling it righteously, we see it fulfilled that Judah yet ruled with God and is faithful with the saints. That is a reference to Hezekiah. It has to be. Who was king at this very time? So the kingdom of Judah was spared total destruction at the hand of the Assyrians, and it continued for many decades after. Actually, about 17 decades, right? However, a great number of Judah had already been taken by the Assyrians, and that was to fulfill the scriptures concerning Israel and Judah as they migrated into Europe. That ends our presentation of Hosea chapters 10 and 11. I'll be back here next Friday, hopefully to wrap up Hosea with chapters 12, 13, and 14. I'll be here tomorrow night. The topic will be announced in the morning, I believe. I'm not sure what I'm going to do yet. Probably one of my, um, well, one of my religious essays, I think, is in line tomorrow. I have a couple in mind, so I won't get into it. But it'll be announced on the front page of Christagenia by tomorrow afternoon. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. Good night. I pray, I pray that we see you here tomorrow and, and next Friday.